Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. On this episode, we return to the topic of Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. Uh, and I'm pleased to have back with me on the show, Brian Clark from the Hudson Institute and his colleague, Dan Pat, also from the Hudson Institute. Brian is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. He is an expert in naval operations, electronic warfare, autonomous systems, military competitions, and wargaming. And Dan is also a senior fellow with the Hudson Institute Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. His experience is at the intersection of technology, business, and national security strategy. His work at Hudson focuses on the role of information and innovation in national security. Brian and Dan, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Yeah, Ken. Thanks for having us on. Um, obviously, we're big fans of the AOC and the podcast. Both Brian and Dan, you uh, recently released a report, a new report entitled One Size Fits None, Overhauling JADC2 to Prioritize the Warfighter and Exploit Adversaries' Weaknesses. Um, and fantastic report, as, as always. And on From the Crow's Nest, we've talked about JADC2 on several different episodes, trying to look at it from different perspectives. And one of the things that we typically walk away with is great concept, but how do we do it? How do, how do you actually get this into some sort of working effort? And your report basically addresses that. And it seems that the, the basic concept or premise is that for JADC2 to be successful, we need to rethink the model we're using. So could you tell us a little bit about the report and, and, and what went into it and what were your thought process as you started out? The reason we uh, started this project and, and wrote the study was largely because we were frustrated with the, the JADC2 approach of uh, trying to boil the ocean, if you will. So we're trying to solve all interoperability problems across the entire military for all situations uh, in all phases of war. And that's even how the JADC2 strategy describes their objective. So it's it's a universalist approach to try to solve everything uh, when it comes to uh, connecting sensors to shooters to commanders to make decisions which is very ambitious and probably not likely to result in success. And if it does result in success, it'll take decades and billions of dollars. And we probably will find at the end, we didn't really solve the problem we intended to, to solve at the beginning. So that was the fundamental problem that we, we saw with it. The reason we talk about this idea of thinking of it as a marketplace or thinking uh, differently about the, the framing of JADC2 is to try to focus it mostly on the customer. So the customer of JADC2 is the combatant commander or the operational commander in the field that he or she needs these uh, joint forces to be able to operate together and execute effects chains out in the field when you're actually fighting an enemy in some real combat situations. Those operational challenges that they're trying to solve, those should be the ones that that the JADC2 effort focuses on. But instead, the JADC2 uh, project is really designed around an industrial model where you know, we're going to 
you know, back in the Pentagon, devise a set of standards and requirements that will result in eventually the force reflecting the kind of interoperability it needs to have so that that poor commander in the field will eventually be able to get a sensor that talks to a, a shooter and talks to a commander, which you know, that industrial model just doesn't work anymore uh, for DOD in the 21st century. I'll turn it over to Dan to talk a little bit about you know what some of the implications of that are, uh, the fact that we need to shift from an industrial model to maybe more of a customer-oriented model. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so Dan, a lot of your work there has, has really kind of carried over how we can apply some of the some of what we know about the commercial sector and the marketplace in, into DoD and changing the way of business. Could you build on, on on some of what Brian said there? You know, Brian teed up a, a pretty rich set of topics. I'll start though. Uh, Again, thanks for for having me on my inaugural appearance here. So appreciate that. Your inaugural, but not your last. <laughs> so uh, you just know what you're getting in for here. Well, yeah, it's a little early to make that judgment. I think, and just just wait till you hear my <laughs> answers. You know, on on this topic, like if we zoom out, the the internet is this amazing thing that dominates the economy, it dominates our lives, right? If you look at the S and P 500, and you look at the companies at the top, all of these big what so-called tech companies are really internet companies that have found ways, you know, to capitalize on on the tremendous value that that can come out of this. And I think it's really natural for the military to to see that and and recognize that that same set of trends and that same set of technology will very clearly be very important for military application. It's not exactly a new idea, but you know, I do think it is richer as as we see it transform the economy in our lives. It's it's very clear that you know the time is right for this. Well, I think the danger comes when you try to just directly map that analogy. So there's this idea that in as much as there's an internet and there's this internet of things where there's all these connected devices that kind of work together and, and help us out in our lives, that we can have the same thing on the military side. We can have this military internet of things, and it's going to kind of work the same way. And if you believe that, the right thing to do would be figure out well, you know, what's the right architecture? What are the common standards? And how can we get people to adopt that so it all works together? It's really, really logical. Why doesn't it work? Well, at the, the bottom line, the reason that it doesn't work, uh, you can actually tell by looking at the evolution of the internet itself. Right? The internet didn't start with some architectural design trying to figure out how to get people to watch, you know, cute cat videos and run dandying apps on it. It didn't start with that architectural design. It actually started around some really pretty simple use cases. There's this thing, it's called Gall's Law, and it states that all complex systems that work evolved from simpler systems that worked. This actually shows up. Every commercial tech company that does these amazing things, they all start from really, really simple use cases, right? This is, this is what investors tell companies to do. Start with a really simple use case. Define cloud computing didn't start by trying to define cloud computing, started by trying to run an online bookstore, and then they repurposed it. So you, you can come up with a lot of examples like that, but so the bottom line of that is JADC2 or military Internet of Things efforts shouldn't start by solving the generic problem. They need to start by focusing very specific military operational problems. So that is the first and number one principle. Well, and this is not something that DOD is very well versed in doing. I mean, you know, a lot of times when they come up with a new concept or even you can a, a new capability, it, it, they try to universalize this. Hey, hey, we can do take this one thing and do everything we want across the force. And then once people start to think about how it, it impacts their 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 lane, you start to see it crumble a little bit. So how how do we make that transition then to? It's very counter to the way DOD is structured and organized to start with very kind of small 
specific uh, uses or examples that we can build upon and evolutionize over a period of time uh, that you're, you're, you're basically asking DOD to turn over on its head. So how do you go about that? Good luck with it. Good, good luck with that answer too. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, how do you change uh, DOD culturally to focus on the customers? So a part of this is a technological evolution. You know, so as, as Dan said, 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, we couldn't have done this. We couldn't have you know, focused first on the customer and the, and the customer's problems and then tried to build a solution and then have it you know, evolve out of that because you know, the technologies that didn't allow that level of tailored capability development and customization at the edge. You kind of had to develop a, a system, a, a ship, an airplane, a radar, and then have that just basically built you know, cookie cutter for the entire force because we had sort of an industrial model and a mass model for the military. But, you know, technology has changed now and so you can customize things at the edge to a degree that you never could before. And that's true of internet-enabled commercial technology and it's true of military technology as well. So today, um, you know, the experiments that the services are doing as part of JADC2, Project Overmatch for the Navy, uh, Project Convergence for the Army, ABMS or Advanced Battle Management System for the Air Force, they're all doing these kind of customized use cases at the edge. The whole reason they're doing these experiments is because they want to figure out how do I get these weapons to talk to these sensors, to talk to these command nodes, and then get them to talk to each other throughout the entire operation. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Is the, the challenge, though, or the problem of those experiments today is they're focused on things the services are interested in connecting. So they're, you know, the, if the service is running it, if the Navy's running Project Overmatch, they're looking to connect Navy things to further the Navy's goal of having a more relevant force. You could quickly, though, uh, fix that by focusing those experiments on problems the combatant commanders want to solve, uh, as opposed to what the service wants to do. You actually led into the, my next question because uh, you know a lot of times the first time that the services are really working together for an, in an operational sense is at the combatant commander level. Um, so you you have these service efforts. Is there any attempt to take these types of you know project overmatch and so forth, and 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 apply them at a combatant commander level where you're you're now having all three, all the services bring in a certain amount of capability and 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 designing that that effort at the joint level right off the bat instead of at the service level. Yeah. So as you noted, so Goldwater Nichols, which created our joint military, never created a way to integrate fo joint forces. So uh, back when we uh, developed Goldwater Nichols, our integration was done mostly procedurally. So all we needed to do was train people in joint operations, and then the people would do the integration. So when I went through JPME phase one and two, I learned how to operate as a joint force, and that was all we needed. Well, now we do a lot of machine-to-machine -machine communication you know, and integration that's required. So you have to technically integrate the force in the field as well. And as you said, the, the services deploy forces to combatant commanders. And the first time they see somebody from another service is when they arrive at the combatant commander's theater, and now they're forced to work together. So but they can't, they have to work together more than on, on just the human terms of procedurally, but also in technical terms of machine to machine integration. So I think you could take these experiments that services are doing and push them out to the combatant commanders and say, okay, combatant commander, Indo-Pacific Indo Command, you're now in charge of Project Overmatch, and you're going to decide what experiments are going to, what things are going to be connected in these experiments, what operational problems you're going to solve, um, what uh, effects chains that you need to create to help solve those operational problems, and have the combatant commanders drive that and give the combatant commanders some of the budget authority that allows them to you know, execute those experiments. 
And I think we've already seen a symptom of how the combatant commanders want more of that responsibility in the Pacific Deterrence Initiative uh, and the European Deterrence Initiative proposals that the you know, UCOM and, and Indo-PACOM provided to the Congress, where they said, here's the you know, infrastructure I need to integrate forces in theater. So the logistics, the training infrastructure, the uh, defense systems, and the communication infrastructure so that I can actually put together joint force packages, because today there's no way to do that other than what the services provide. Yeah, allow me not to augment that. You know, for me, as, as Brian and I started looking at this problem, and, and I guess we've been looking at this for, for a couple of years now, and, you know, it first became clear to me the role of technology. It's, it's what Brian said. Suddenly, I had this technical aspect to integration, not just planning an operation that we're in the same area at the same time. We've talked about our plans, we've rehearsed our plans, but now there's this technical integration and that there is no way when I define the requirements of my acquisition programs to align up, to make sure that every mission system, every weapon system in the inventory works together, that's impossible. Once you realize that, it's a little stunning because you realize there's no way to make this happen, right? There's no structure. There's nobody responsible for this in the department. Uh, but the flip side of that is there's this, there's this tremendous opportunity. There's this tremendous opportunity for recombining our existing military capability, our existing inventory around new operational concepts, new tactics, new kill chains. That is it's really exciting. Once you, when, once you start thinking in these recombinatorial terms, there's a lot of really creative things that can happen. So this is a really tough problem, but if we can unlock this, this, we can really move the needle in the near term. I want to be clear, this doesn't have to wait a couple decades. This is the kind of thing that we can make progress on in the next couple of years. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research, and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. 
we then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. In our previous episode of From the Crow's Nest, we were talking about Ukraine and, and we, we talked about one of the hallmarks of U.S. forces and training is that we have a decentralized command and decentralized execution versus, you know, what the Russian forces are typically applying, which is completely opposite in the centralized version. But with the, you have this decentralized command and decentralized execution, but you have a very centralized bureaucracy driving the requirements, driving the program development. So how do you, you know, Dan, you talked a little bit, you know, you just talked about how there's a tremendous opportunity there and we can do that quickly. And I think we, if you look at the joint forces, we actually do have an ability to look at it differently than the way that our organization is structured. But how do you, who do you put in charge or how do you, what is that first step to kind of open up that opportunity put someone there or put a group of people there that is responsible for taking charge of that opportunity in the right way, apart from the centralized bureaucracy? Look, I, I think there are a number of ways that you could try to address this. And, and, um, Brian will have some thoughts on this too. One particularly interesting idea came out of last year's NDAA and is the concept of a, of a mission manager. Everybody knows what a program manager is. Section 871 defined a mission manager, which is somebody who looks after a particular operational problem or an operational outcome. And isn't trying to create a weapon system around that, but is trying to connect weapon systems and connect tactics uh, and has presumably some amount of discretionary funding. And uh, I think the legislation assigned the, the initial pilot to, to SCO, but it defined it as a generic construct. So, you know, that's one way that, that you could do this without revisiting Goldwater Nickel, without a major muscle movement is you could find, you know, can't restructure the whole department like that. But there are probably a handful of things that are important enough. Assigning a mission manager might be a way to do it. I know Brian's also been thinking about some other structural uh, and incremental ways to, to address this. Yeah. So if we think about uh, JADC2 being you know, more about uh, integrating the effects chains that command combatant commanders actually need today. So instead of trying to solve all these problems from back in the Pentagon or back with the services, try to solve what the combatant commanders need today and then work out from there. Um, 
you need to have an organization out there that's working for the combatant commander and identifying, all right, well, what are our most important operational problems that we have to solve? You know, whether it's uh, an invasion of Taiwan or a blockade of Taiwan or an attack on the Senkakus, if you're into PACOM, you say, well, you know, one of my operational problems is, for example, how do I sustain air operations out of uh, Kadena in Okinawa. You could say, if I, if, if I have that, it's going to enable me to be more effective and create more problems for the Chinese planning process if I'm able to sustain some air operations from Kadena, in, no matter what the scenario is. All right, well, then, given that operational problem or that opportunity, what are some effects chains I need to be able to execute in order to support or to address that operational problem? And then you can have that uh, build out from there. I think the organizational construct uh, for identifying those challenges and kill chains or effects chains might be like a joint task force type organization. So we used to have um, following you know, the transformation effort of the early 2000s, uh, standing joint task forces uh, inside each of the combatant commands. And their job was to think about day to day how to prepare for war with their opponents that are in that theater. That that concept sort of fell apart over time because the services didn't want to support it. The combat commanders didn't want to devote resources to it. Um, so it kind of it kind of fell apart. But reinvigorating that concept and saying we need to have an organization that's thinking about the challenges and the and the effects chains the combatant commander needs to put in place could be a way to have essentially a bottom-up approach to implementing JADC2 instead of the top-down approach that's being driven from the Pentagon today. You, you basically, in your report, talk about making JADC2 a decision-centric approach versus what is a forecast-centric approach and, and, and being able to give the commanders a little bit more flexibility to pull in what they need to at any given time. Right. So today, um, how the how it works is the Indo-Pacific commander, for example, is constrained in how many options uh, he has or in the future she has because of what the services provide in terms of force packages. Because if you're Indo-Pacific command, you can't mix and match what the services provide you because you have no infrastructure, you know, no organization that's charged with it. You have no ability to recompose those forces. So you're stuck with what the services give you, a carrier strike group, a, a brigade combat team, a marine expeditionary unit. You know, and you could do some adjustments at the edges, but you're kind of stuck with that force packaging, which means that if you're trying to develop courses of action, deal with operational problems, you're left with, you know, not too many ways to adapt your force, which, you know, that's great for China's planning process because it means they kind of depend on you being able to operate a certain way. But it's not so good for our ability to get a decision making advantage over the Chinese. So if you want to deter China, uh, we have to start thinking in terms of uh, going beyond just you know fighting them out in a battle of fires and defense, you know, an attrition battle, and instead think about how do we get a decision-making advantage that gives them enough uncertainty that maybe they are dissuaded from uh, conflict or once conflict starts, they seek an off-ramp. You can kind of see an example of that today with Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine has presented enough different challenges to Russia that they were forced to back up and then take a different approach to the Ukrainian invasion. You know, so that's the kind of challenge we'd want to impose on China were it to think about aggression against one of its neighbors. And, and that's kind of, again, leading into my next question was we're about two months into the, the, the conflict here with what's going on in Ukraine. What have we learned about how about the execution of what's going on over there? How has that affected uh, either the sense of urgency or kind of the resolve to make these adjustments to prepare or to help us understand how to position our force in, in, in the PACOM region against another peer competitor? I mean, have we learned anything that we're able to move quickly on? Yeah. So I think if you look at what the Ukrainians have done, 
they have adopted a very, what we would call decision-centric approach to their fight. So uh, they didn't try to fight the Russians symmetrically armor on armor around Kiev, for example. They chose to take their forces and recompose them in a way that was going to be able to give them an advantage both in the fight, but more importantly, in the decision-making battle with the the Russians. So uh, instead of bringing out their armor, they chose instead to use Starlink internet terminals, commercial satellite coverage, spotters and uh, javelins and stinger missiles to go after Russian multi-mission platforms, whether it's a tank or a helicopter or an airplane. Um, And that was pretty effective because it created a lot of uncertainty for Russian uh, command and control, which faltered and eventually failed. And it gave the the Ukrainians lots of uh, options to be able to execute their counteroffensives. So that, that shift from a you know, kind of traditional planning approach to an optionality approach where they try to give their local commanders lots of ways to pursue the battle um, really worked out well for the Ukrainians. Um, it kind of shows us how we might have to think about adapting our own ability to defend uh, if we were put in that same position against the Chinese. Yeah, I I think I think Brand's right. I mean, Ukrainians have uh, really appear to have leveraged uh, adaptation uh, and surprise very, very effectively. Uh, and both of those things come out of models where you're delegating decision-making. You're really pushing capability to, to the edge. Sometimes that's tactical innovation. The you know, Some really clever uh, tactics emerging about, uh, it's not just having javelins, right? It's also how you use them. And you know they're figuring this out on on the fly, and and some some really really clever tactics have have appeared you know in the media about how these are employed at night, you know repurposing pieces of equipment, re, you know uh, repurposing the the sites and, and targeting systems from the javelins to be able to you know better operate uh, uh, at night, and being able to just keep imposing surprise on on the Russians. Right, those character like even if the theater is different and the weapons are different and the nature of the conflict is different, right? Those parts of conflict are intrinsic. Those don't go away. And the question the U.S. should be asking is trying to figure out how we can engender that kind of adaptability and surprise at scale, uh, given the you know technologies and theater and adversaries we're likely to face in the future. Yeah, and I'll add to that. So the um, JADC2 was intended to do this, right? So when you hear some of the early discussions about JADC2 is, you know, any sensor, any shooter, I want the force, you know, commanders locally to be able to combine any forces they have and make make a kill chain, which is a great aspiration. That's the correct goal, I think. The, the difficulty is if you're trying to do that from the Pentagon, you're, then you're trying to you know boil the ocean. You're trying to come up with you know make every connection between every unit possible uh, instead of saying, well, I'm going to turn this over largely to my field commander, in this case the combatant commanders, to decide what they need to be able to combine, and they will try to maximize their options in the field. Let's start with that instead of trying to you know use the industrial model of pushing interoperability out to the edge. Um, let's. Let's let the combatant commanders take advantage of the interoperability they can create using modern tools. So um, Dan could talk more about this, but there's a lot of you know software-driven uh, tools available that could provide us interoperability that don't have to come from the Pentagon, but it could be instead put in place uh, locally by the uh, field commander or by by the the support stru- infrastructure in the field. How do we leverage some of the things that we can learn on interoperability from from business sector into into DoD? I think it really revolves around this this paradigm. There's this industrial paradigm that is 
compile and then compose. <laughs> so compile means in the software sense, it means, you know, you, you turn it into a binary executable form, but in general, right, it means you, you build something. And compose means you, you put it together with the other pieces you, you need to, to do it. And, and that is, you know, that's, that's the way we used to think about, uh, you know, I build an aircraft carrier and I build the aircraft that go in the aircraft carrier. I compile each of them and then I compose them. I put them together. And, and in an industrial sense, that makes sense. Uh, and if I think about that context, right, it really makes me think about interoperability as a puzzle where I'm really focused on, on the interfaces for that puzzle uh, and trying to define them very carefully at the requirements time. The other way you could think about interoperability is the other way around. First, I compose and then I compile. This is what you find in these, these you know, complex commercial environments, these business systems and information systems. So what does that mean? That means I start looking at my military capabilities like a pipeline, like a software delivery pipeline. And first I set my configuration. What are the things that I need to be operating together? And then I compile them, first compose and then compile. So that does include meaning the software, right? Which means that I'm probably taking that configuration right? and I'm actually figuring out what do I need to make those pieces work together? And this is, this is a paradigm that, that, you know, you see, you see all of the time. What are, what are some examples of this is, you know, like, like a, a modern abstracted operating system like Android is, is, is doing this, right? Is, is I've separated out these pieces and, and I'm able to set the configuration and then I, I, you know, compile and then I get the configuration right. So you could imagine doing this also for military systems, right? Is, all right, these are the systems I need operating together. Like, let's automatically generate the right network parameters, network participation groups, et cetera, in order for these to be able to operate, right? Get the protocols, uh, you know, freeze them, right? Basically at mission planning time. That's the kind of model, that more modern model of interoperability, just a shift in how you think about it, that you're likely to need to get the kind of dynamism we're talking about. So in the military sense, you could see putting together, you'd say, okay, well, I'm the combatant commander. The effects chain I need to put together is you know, an F-35 launching some kind of a, you know, JASM or LRASM strike missile, um, but I'm going to need to be able to uh, target that missile using a space development agency, low Earth orbit sensor, and then I'm going to need to do battle damage assessment on that using, you know, a Reaper, you know, a EOIR sensor. So this is my effects chain. I need all these things to work together because they got to be able to talk to each other and be able to share data in real time. So instead of figuring all that out and trying to create all those interfaces through uh, standards and requirements back at the Pentagon, you say, Combat Commander, I'm going to give you the software code writers and uh, the you know, money to be able to go write the code necessary to make those things talk to each other in the field. Uh, and some examples of how we're doing that today is with these experiments that the services are doing, they have software factories. They have uniform members that are out there writing code so they can make a air defense, like a THAAD air defense battery, talk to a Patriot air defense battery through IBCS. They're having software code writers be able to connect, you know, a F-35 to a DDG, a Navy destroyer. You've got these software factories that are using service members and government civilians to be able to do this supported by contractors, but they're out in the field doing this as opposed to trying to do it as part of the acquisition process. You know, another example of this might be what the Spectrum Warfare Wing and the Air Force does with stitches. 
which is a interoperability tool chain you know, that writes software code in the field to be able to take data from one format, turn into another, link 16 to TTNT, CDL to TTNT. So try to write uh, software code in the field that allows things to connect and basically you know, do that compiling in the field. We have time for one more question, and, and, and I apologize because it's not an easy, uh, short answer for either of you. But you basically have five key recommendations because obviously this is a huge task, but you really break it down into five things that you think DOD can do today to really get the ball rolling in, in, in this new effort. So wanted to you to go, kind of go through quickly, kind of talk about each of those five uh, recommendations. I'll kind of let you split it up as you, as you want, but we talked a little bit about some of them throughout the conversation this afternoon. But if you could go through and just kind of talk about what are some of the, what are the five steps that you've outlined that can get DOD on the right track to uh, implementing this model? Well, um, I'll, I'll start and, and then I, I'll turn it over to Dan. So I think the, the first thing is going to be getting the joint staff out of the role of being in charge of JADC2, uh, its implementation, uh, because right now they're running it as the, JAD, as the joint staff can uh, through setting requirements and standards, which uh, since the joint staff doesn't have any real authority, means that this process is going to take a very long time to be eventually permeating throughout the entire military. So that's one of the reasons why JADC2 is going to take forever and cost a lot of money is that it, we're, the joint staff is leading it as a requirements process rather than leading it, uh, having an organization lead it that can actually do joint integration. So let's get the joint staff out of the role of being in charge of JADC2 and instead focus them on working with the combat commanders to identify those key operational challenges and the effects chains that have to be developed. And then the combat commanders, for their part, need to focus on identifying their operational challenges and effects chains that need to be addressed in order to support their approaches to deterrence and their approaches to deal with the adversaries in their theater. And then uh, I'll uh, turn it over to Dan because then we get into you know what the services are doing and, and then what do we need to do to build the infrastructure. Look, I, I mean, I would say in our recommendations, there's some good news, right? So the good news is it's good that the services are doing things that are a little bit unique. Uh, that provides resilience and diversity. That's a good thing. But what we're what we're missing is actually making concrete concrete progress on the problems that our combatant commanders face, our real operational problems. Bottom line, that's where we have to focus. That's where we have to think about connecting our systems, building new uh, effects chains, building new capability. And you know, the hard work begins by identifying what some of those key problems are. And finding finding funding and somebody to, to run it, and that could be slotted in under experimentation. It could be slotted in under under mission management. But I think that's really the core of our idea. And what you'll soon find is there's a real role for technology in thinking about those capabilities as part of a pipeline. Technology that supports that, right? Things like live virtual constructive simulation, things like toolkit for interoperability that Brian talked about, and other supporting infrastructure. And I think that's exciting. So the yeah the services role you know needs to shift from thinking about their own equities and instead focus their experimentation on what the combatant commanders need and then you know to get to what Dan's saying about like you know live virtual constructive training and some of these software tools that's that horizontal infrastructure you know that's that that set of you know, capabilities and uh, software factories and people that has to be provided to the combat commanders to allow them to do this integration of both the human and the technical dimensions of a joint force package. Um, and those organizations you know, are like the Strategic Capabilities Office, which is doing mission management for the current pilot. It's like the Jake, you know, the Joint AI Center, which is supporting some of these toolkit development projects. Uh, it's like the Spectrum Warfare Wing that you know is producing stitches. 
software factories that are supporting interoperability toolkits for the other services. So that in horizontal infrastructure is necessary. So DOD needs to identify you know, which of these you know, DARPA, Jake, Go, et cetera, organizations are going to be charged with supporting the combatant commanders and doing joint integration in the field. And the services need to fall in and support that with their experimentation efforts that you know, increasingly need to be led by the combatant commanders. Great. Well, well, thank you, Dan and, and Brian, for uh, joining me here on the, from the Crow's Nest. That's all the time we have for this episode. But I, I do appreciate your time, and I encourage all of our listeners to access the report. They, it can be found on Hudson.org. It's a great read, and I think it, there's a lot of forward-thinking uh, recommendations and, and material in there. So, so thank you for taking time to join me here on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guests, Brian Clark and Dan Pat from the Hudson Institute. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate us and comment wherever you download the podcast. I appreciate hearing from listeners and it always helps us to make improvements on the show and respond to listeners' interests. You can also visit our website at crows.org for more information on upcoming activities and programs, as well as our sister podcast, The History of Crows. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.